Hello, weary mortal traveler. You've arrived at an intersection here, one of my favorite intersections in the whole world, the intersection of music and mortality. I hope you love it here as much as I do. If you're like me, you miss those days where you went to the store, the music store. Oh, hey, everybody. It's Ned Buskirk, your host uh, for this Creatively Conscious Mortality podcast. You're going to die, the podcast. Welcome. But do you remember when you'd go get a CD? Am I dating myself? <laughs> you go and get your CD, your cassette, your eight track. I never got that stuff. Although I do think my first album... Might have been a cassette tape. What was your first album? I got, I think, because I cared so much about my dad. And I think it started to like some of his music by then. When I was 12, 13 or so. I think the first album I got was Aaron Copeland Collection. American composer. Fanfare for the Common Man. Such a powerful soundtrack to some of those early years driving around in my dad's big old Chevy, listening to his classical music station. And he played some other stuff too, but okay. Remember those days? <laughs> Enough of my reminiscing. Remember those days when you get a whole album and just get to be with a whole album? And I know times change and that's okay. I love my playlists that I have, thousands of favorite songs. But every now and then, someone releases something that comes out on Spotify and it's not just a single. It's a song connected to a whole album. And it's rare that I find this. And it may be that I'm not doing good enough work to discover these albums. But the guest on this episode of You're Going to Die, the podcast, is my most recent recollected memory of this. I don't have a lot of this happening anymore. But I found in my release radar a song from Karima Walker and I put it on repeat, and I couldn't stop listening to it. It's one of those songs, my favorite songs, that has usually a ballad feel that catches my sad real well. I want it to go on for 20 minutes, and it's only three minutes long. So I just would put it on repeat. And it was a song you could do that to in a way that it just seemed like it was 20 minutes but it's still just a three-minute song going on over and over and over again. And after that song, I had to get more. And so, lo and behold, there was a whole album. And I listened to the whole album and loved it all and listened to it all repeatedly. And then it's that moment where you think, oh my goodness, who is this person? Why is this moving me so much? Why does this matter to me so much? And so I reached out to Karima on their website. And I didn't hear back from them, <laughs> which is totally fine for many months until one day an email popped through. And you know pretty much all the story you need to know about this episode's guest. Karima is an artist and a musician living in Tucson, Arizona. 
Her work uses songwriting, video, field recordings, and sampling to consider the ways narratives and landscapes shape each other and people who inhabit them. The album I've been talking about is Waking the Dreaming Body, and the song, the first song I heard is the first song on that album, Reconstellated. This album came out in 2021, and you'll hear the track Reconstellated at the end of our interview. But what I want to say is the months that had passed since I reached out to Karima, Karima had gone through a major loss. And so the timing of our togetherness here accented by that loss and so much of the conversation around the death of her mom and what it was like going through that and what it means to create and be an artist out of these times, out of these losses, out of such grief. Oh, the, the timing could not have been better for me too to get this chance to talk to a new favorite musician and about the things I care about more than anything. And I hope you get a lot out of this conversation here on You're Going to Die, the podcast with Karima Walker. It is really fresh, and yet there are these windows of time where I am um, seemingly, you know, functioning pretty normally or... <laughs> going out, seeing people again. Um, and then I just kind of keep, I, I keep calling it time travel because <laughs> I, mm. I feel like there are these um, portals I'll just sort of pass through and not always know why. Um, and I, I'm suddenly back in, this really kind of fresh grief and um, yeah. <laughs> do, you, yeah. Do you mean like you, you know, you know, fresh grief, you've felt no surprise, like fresh grief before and you're back in it now. Or do you mean since your mom died, you're in it now again, like it comes in waves. Yeah. It comes in waves and it's not linear. And mm -hmm. that. Um, it, it'll sometimes feel like this realization that she's actually gone and like, as if I'd forgotten, like as if I'd mm -hmm. sort of been moving through life that she was still, you know, alive. And then, so it's, uh, it's like a returning to that, um, maybe not that, um, moment of finding out about her passing but the few weeks after the the real kind of sort of tumultuous um time after that it's like I keep walking back into that space mm. and um it's strange though because there's something bizarrely kind of ecstatic about it and I don't mm -hmm. mean like happy but there's something about like um because of the nature of our relationship which was complicated to say the least um there's almost something grounding in feeling grief of like mm -hmm. wow the, you know I I, I spent um, we spent a lot of our, my, of my life, I was estranged from her and mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time trying to understand the, um, 
what was missing. And in terms of, you know, not having my birth mother in my life and in these ways that I saw other people um, modeling motherhood or, or receiving, you know, love from their mothers in these ways that I could see out in the world. And then I would think like, well, what, like, what are the pieces that I don't have? It's like, you know, trying to name something that's not there. And there's something about the grief of like, uh, I, I don't know. It, it's complicated. I'm losing words, but it's like, mm-hmm. it's love. I think, I think it's love. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, there's something assuring mm-hmm. about that. Um, mm-hmm. I, I make no assumptions that I could possibly understand, especially the dynamic of your relationship with your mom before she died. But if I could try to connect from what, you know, my mom didn't, my mom died in 2003 and there, like, I, I guess I could say like anybody could with their parents, it's complicated. <laughs> it's complicated, but I know that it's more than that for you. And and just even in the little you've shared already, but I also think I can connect to, I both have said like the ecstasy, like it's such a wild word. Ecstatic is such a wild word, but I know I've used that word and I've used it to describe some of my emotional experience after her death. And I, I guess I'm feeling permission to say my version of, of what connects to that word is maybe other than that waves of grief, feeling the like such sorrow and heartbreak and then the cracking open of that grief and being the kind of person who would. And so then also have in that opening feeling how much life there is and how much I love life and I love my mom. And, and so it's that. And I think there was a lot of relief is such a wild word. And I just want to say it because I know maybe someone's listening and maybe there's a way you relate to this, but there was relief, especially after how many years she dealt with cancer and how alone I felt like she was and how reliant on me I felt like she was. By the way, who knows if she felt that way because she didn't talk a lot about these things, Mm -hmm. but these were burdens that I had. And so there was something released and especially all these years later, maybe too soon to say to you, like, how's that part going? But, but to be a version of someone 20 years later, who's in conversation with my mom in ways that I never even got to be when she was alive, Mm -hmm. you know, that, that it could only come because of, of her death and the wake of her death, even 20 years later. Mm -hmm. I don't know if some of that connects to some of what you're sharing. I wonder. Oh, it really does. I mean, Mm -hmm. um, um, my, I think my my mom had a really hard life and um she um I, I don't know it's I remember these feelings of like um I I feel that she died you know too young for what I thought the women in our family you know lived to be well into their Mm -hmm. 80s. And, you know, she was 65. It was sudden. It was a a heart attack. And um, I just, I remember I was so, (laughs) I felt so, so much sorrow around the nature of her passing and how um, she was living as an undocumented um, 
migrant in as a worker in France had been sending money to um, the family in Tunisia, building a house, building this security, sending money to take care of the family and and preparing a place for herself um, and was in this, you know, mm. tiny little apartment in Paris. Um, and uh, I think there was, I think she carried so much sadness and um, heartache. I, I think, you know, there were, I, I think she was absolutely depressed for a long time um, in part because we were all separated from a young age and there was a lot of regret and I think she mm-hmm. felt really responsible. And I just, I remember there were these feelings of like, it's not fair. I mean, it's so not fair that <laughs> someone was you just like working and saving and, and scraping together something for herself in the future and didn't get mm-hmm. to, um, didn't get to enjoy that. And then, um, this feeling of like her sadness slowly breaking her down over time. And then, but then I also hesitate because like she's gone now and she's mm-hmm. not in that tiny little apartment anymore. Um, feeling that sadness, you know, I, I don't think. And, and I, Mm-hmm. And so there's this feeling of like, well, these, this is my version of her story that I'm sure, feeling right. all this injustice around. And then there was kind of this, there is this relief of like, well, she doesn't have to feel this pain anymore. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I got windows into that when I would visit her that um, it was pretty dark and she had her ups and downs and... um when I'd last seen her, things were not so great. And, um, yeah. So a long way of answering that, you know, I, yes, it's like the lowest, you know, deepest sorrow. And then this, like, like she doesn't have to make sense of this story. Right. Like that's, Mm -hmm. this is me. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Now it's your job. <laughs> now it's your job. I'm the one who's like spinning with the wheels over here. Well, I, and like, and there's also some of frustration too. Like there, there was sort of a mess when she left mm, in, of yeah. like navigating things with family and man, I would love to know what she thinks about all of it and how to navigate <laughs> it and what she, how she wants things to actually be. And you know, it's, mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah. I really relate to that too. I, I mean, I don't know, again, I don't know about the complications with family, but I do feel like what my sister and I were left with, it wasn't figured out the things we had to deal with that she didn't make time for, never talked to us about. And I'm, I'm proud of how my sister and I dealt with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it certainly wasn't easy for a child to feel like you weren't taken care of in that way. (laughs) Like, 
it would have been so easy for not, maybe not easy, but would have made sense for her to do. Like my kids are going to deal with this. Yeah. What can I do to like now to make this time that I know is coming that maybe she was in denial of, I'm sure she was. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I know I'm, I'm hearing you from a version of a, some version of, uh, of, I think, um, that connects. Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm also thinking, like you said, that it's your job now. And I do, I, I wonder about that as, especially as an artist, but for me it was, and it took years really, right. I'm confining my mom in this reliving of, especially the last week of her life and kind of the, it terrorized by it, you know, how hard it was, how, how weak she was, mm -hmm. um, you know, moments where she would just fall over and it felt like I was responsible or didn't do enough to take care of her or protect her. And the reason why I'm sharing that is because it felt like something, what I think is that you're describing a version of, which is now it's this time for us to, for me, it was a time for me to free her from that week. And I, I kept her there for a long time. I think in ways that my grief needed, needed to, you know, it needed to like process and work it through. And as much as traumatizing, maybe as it was to have to keep kind of returning to it, but mm -hmm. therapy, bereavement, grieving it, and then finding her somewhere else, like past that or away from that context mm -hmm. and knowing that it takes our work, the living to maybe help them get that. Or even, especially for someone listening, it's like, Oh, I don't believe that they're involved in this. Well, fine. You don't have to, but I had to do work to get her to some other place mm -hmm. where I could be relationship with her in a different way that wasn't confined to that week or any of the heartbreak of her life, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I really resisted looking at photos or, um, listening to voice messages that she'd mm -hmm. sent me. And, um, I don't know. I, there is, yeah, absolutely. I mean, feeling terrorized by that. I mean, um, it's, it's hard not to be kind of hypnotized by the, I don't know, it just even just like the bodily reality of mm -hmm. somebody dying and mm -hmm. especially your mother. I mean that it, the, as like a, a, a person who carried you and birthed you and, you know, I, I didn't, I don't have profound thoughts around motherhood or, or I didn't have them, you know, we very late in our relationship kind of had some of those realizations of like, Oh, like, you know, our feet are kind of the same. And, you know, mm -hmm. these sort of like something about the, the, the passing of her and, and her body being, you know, she was um, buried in, in Tunis in North Africa and there were complications and, and, being able to receive her body from France and um, also because she was Muslim and the nature of Muslim um, uh, like funeral and burial there, there are these proximities to her body that happen and mm. um, or not, you know, so there is essentially a wake where we spent the night around her body. All of the women slept around um, 
her coffin. Mm -hmm. And then um, the next day she was taken to the cemetery. And I guess in um, Islam, you know, women aren't technically allowed to be at the actual burial. And my sister and I um, are not Muslim. And so we had some family members advocating for us so we could be there. And I just, you know, seeing her being laid in the, you know, it's like something about body is just something mm-hmm. that like in a way it's it's terrorizing and in a way it's mm-hmm. like i don't know how else to like fully accept that she's gone like there's something mm-hmm. about like my brain kind of understands it in this analytical way and there's something maybe in my body that like still isn't registering or still isn't mm-hmm. able to grapple with it um mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think I'm only I, responding in part to what you were talking about, but this this idea of like, it's like almost like a fixation or image of of that, this sort of this, not sort of, this very traumatic passage. And then how does that over time become more complex or nuanced or, int- you know, how does that shift and change? And mm-hmm. it's strange. I, I would like, I started you know, just talking to her in my head. And um, Mm. I would have sort of these conversations around that because, you know, I sort of... With with her. (laughs) With her, yeah. You know, something would happen or especially in the few weeks after she passed, like I'd be fumbling around and drop something or, you know, everything's kind of falling apart or, you know, I am clumsy or you just moving through the house and... I'd feel like she was watching me or I'd say like, you know, get, get a load of this. Like what, what's going on? Like why, you know, and there's this feeling of like, um, her presence and it's, (laughs) I don't know. Um, (laughs) in a way it's like, I didn't want that to go away. You know, I, Mm -hmm. I didn't, I didn't want to leave that window of time where she might feel further. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I feel like in, I, I, well, first of all, thanks for sharing all that. And thanks for sharing some of the details of her burial and just even imagining you with other women in the community or family sleeping around her, you know, gosh, you know, I wish I, had had that kind of time. I, I feel like it was three minutes, you know, at the, at the funeral home. Um, and I also know there's people and maybe me at 26 that wouldn't have taken the opportunity to do something like what you got to have with them and, and your mom. Um, but also when it's built in to our culture and a ritual ceremony of it, to know like, well, this is the next thing, you know, like you don't have to get introduced to something, even though maybe for you not being Muslim, it was an introduction, maybe something unexpected, but still the, like, this is what we do Mm -hmm. and that you got to have that. And I feel like I definitely, especially working with so many dying people and people who have lost others feel that there's some kind of fresh connection 
in weeks, maybe even months after someone dies that starts to dissipate or transition shift. I don't know. Um, but it reminds me of the conversation I told you about that I had yesterday for the podcast and the, and now I'm like <laughs> too quickly saying, but you can keep doing it. But I know that it's something changing. Mm-hmm. This person's talking about, you know, five, six, seven years after their dad dies, mm-hmm. writing to them every week, every Friday in this mm-hmm. special journal that's just for that. And so knowing that we're in a stage, maybe like you said, that could come possibly with music. And that's kind of where I want to go next, mm-hmm. where you get to start a different kind of conversation feeling the grief and heartbreak of losing even the last three weeks, you know, the three weeks version of, of your mom after she died. Um, so then what is the new conversation? What is the new way to connect? And I do wonder if music for you has been some of that yet. Yeah, it's, um, I don't know yet. I think, um, (laughs) yeah, yeah. it's like more, that's fair. More generally, um, there's, uh, gosh. So I, um, I'm 38 mm-hmm. and, um, I finally, after maybe like 15 years of thinking about it and wishing and wondering, I applied to art school and, um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and awesome. I did, I did that like, you know, I did that in December and, mm. um, and I got into a program. I'm just like blown away. Mm. Um, and then now I'm thinking, okay, well, this is obviously because she died. Like I, I've. You do she, connect it to that. I do. And it's not specifically mm-hmm. music yet, but, in, but mm-hmm. um, there's this kind of, it's not quite an urgency. It it doesn't feel like it has like the wind beneath its wings. It's kind of, (laughs) it's almost, it's way more sobering than something like, like a, like an antsiness, but there's this feeling Mm. of like, Oh, I do want to be alive. Oh, Oh, I, Mm -hmm. I, you know, I've, um, uh, struggled with depression on and off for a long time. And, um, sometimes you know, when you're depressed, you're not so sure you want to be alive. And it, and it's just sort of, uh, life is just sort of happening to you. And mm-hmm. there's something shifting, I think, um, around. And, and I don't know if it's the fact that she died suddenly and of something that I never would have imagined happening, you know, in our family, you know, if that is part of it, it's like the jarringness of like, yeah, this, this can go anytime. Like there's no, there's no promise here. There's no guarantee. All the stories in your head about what could happen, where this could go, where you might be in 10 years. And it's like, I'm not saying I have no, uh, I'm not thinking about the future at all, but there's something, there's something like kind of churning of like, Okay, well, what does being alive look like? And what are you actually afraid of? And and um, maybe failing isn't, you know, messing up in front of people. Like maybe failing mm-hmm. is not trying for me, right? Is Or that yeah. maybe that's that's the thing I, I would struggle to live with more than making a fool out of myself or... And, and so from that, um, I applied to 
arts cool and am <laughs> taking this like kind of um yeah I'm, I'm i'm making this shift in my creative practice and but i'm also making music and um i had been working on music pretty um pretty excitedly in the fall and um when she died i, I everything kind of just stopped yeah. everything just like cracks open and mm-hmm. um i've i've started thinking about you know the she was a singer um you know she mm-hmm. had this incredible voice and but there's something that really scares me about starting to like dig into the ephemera and you know there's almost something mm-hmm. that feels grotesque about it and i i don't mm. know what that is yet i think uh. I, part of it might be because i don't think my mom was crazy about my music <laughs> wait say <laughs> that so, wait <laughs> wait say that again um <laughs> say that again i don't i i don't think my mom was like crazy about my music okay. I, I think she yeah. like i think that she really wanted to cheer me on. Um, and Mm. when, if I received any praise or, you know, um, if I was booking shows or, you know, she was like, yeah, like, you know, really excited for me. Um, Yeah, sure. (laughs) But she had like a very specific understanding of what a performer is and does and how that should look. And, you know, she was much more in like, the diva lineage, um, singing these like incredible, um, Arabic language ballads and pop songs and kind of this jukebox. Like she had this reservoir of songs that she could pull from and she had this big booming voice. Uh, she had this very, um, you know, particular way of thinking about performance. And I don't think that my music like fell into that category and so she would try to kind of urge me to move in different directions anyway so I'm saying that because I I I I don't know how I think about afterlife uh presences exactly I I I sort of suspend things in this place of um you know sort of vaguely spiritual and but I I have this sense of her presence and I wonder about like um what she would think of me you know pulling from this this like very modest archive I have of her um yeah I don't know Did you know that You're Going to Die, the podcast, is a product of You're Going to Die, the 501c3 nonprofit? This is true. If you've just been listening to the podcast, that's great. I want you to know thank you, and you've been supporting our 501c3 nonprofit. And so thank you very much. And I want you to know more about what we're up to in the world. Our mission is to bring diverse communities creatively into the conversation of death and dying to inspire life 
by unabashedly sourcing our shared mortality. We have ongoing concerts in person and online, open mics in person online. We have workshops sourcing our mortality to create meaning in our life, making room for grief and healing, often using music and writing, but whatever way we can do it to connect community, remember we're not alone and maybe feel more alive than ever before. We also have a prison program that serves community impacted by the prison system. I want you to know that we have a grief release free on Zoom every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific for an hour to be with community who can hold the hard parts of being mortal together. We have in-person open mics happening in the San Francisco Bay Area, here in San Francisco proper, the city of, and in Berkeley. And we're going to be in Phoenix, Arizona next week doing one of our open mics while we're at the Innocence Network Conference doing an event as a part of that as well with our prison program. Lots of stuff going on. Check out our website at www.yg2d.com or just Google you're going to die. And all those links that come up on the first page are our links somehow connected to what we're up to. Get on our email list. Follow us on social media on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok. All the links are in our show notes. Needless to say, we're so glad you're alive and we're so glad you're here as a part of our You're Going to Die community. Yeah, um, it's funny how album they are just they just kind of go out and live their own lives and <laughs> they come back sometimes. And I that one was that one was hard for me to know how to talk about because it came out of kind of a a pretty low season and it felt um 
I don't want to talk bad about my own album after you just said something. I think it's nice great. It's it. great because when people I, get on stage, like <laughs> musicians get on stage and say, this isn't great or I don't, I don't love this song. And then they play it and then it just blows people away. So I think it's a great approach. No, I hate, well, I just, I don't want to put people in a situation to have to like for you to make me feel better about it or you know once okay, I okay I promise I won't about, do that okay okay well as long as that's I already said everything that I feel so I won't yeah. I won't say it now so now I'm gonna talk shit about it no I great no, talk shit just, on it I guess like that album so I it's hard not to talk about the record that came before it at the same time where mm-hmm. I the record before it there I was really um I was just starting to like break away from things that felt more familiar and conventional in terms of my approach to songwriting and making music. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then, um, and so it was exciting and I, I, you know, was just sort of making things on my own and it was just sort of me alone making these things and exploring and experimenting. And then with the second record, I didn't really know where to go from the first record. And I kind of, I felt this like self-consciousness about kind of like plumbing a space that I had already explored and, and I wasn't sure if there was anything there for me to keep doing. I I think I was like, uh, you know, just really depressed. And, um, I, I also like, it was also like pretty deeply inspired, um, in in some ways conceptually, like by therapy, which, um, Mm. it, uh, I remember my therapist was telling me about, um, I, she's a, she does somatic experiencing and psychoanalysis and she does this, this wonderful blend of all of these, um, modalities. And in talking about, um, speaking in like somatic language, she talked about my like dream body and, and, and it was this term I had never heard before. And I, I'm someone who, um, I might be a long sleeper, I think is what they're called. I don't know. I can't remember if that's the right term, but I I sleep a lot and I also feel a lot of shame about sleeping a lot and um, was really trying to like press into that language and this this sort of, I don't know, it sleep, it's like this thing that can be a symptom of depression and it's also like... Mm-hmm. In herbalism, it's like one of the first medicines that people talk about that you always have like rest and it's like you know, right. drinking water, rest, like movement, like those. And, and so it was, I think that kind of informed sort of the, the season I was in, in a way, or it just articulated the season I was in, in a way. And I, the way I kind of talked about the album I had a hard time talking about it um, or knowing how to talk about it because I thought you know this isn't something I have access to right now like even though I made it it doesn't mean I know what it's doing and mm. and you're sort of expected to know how to say things right. about it and um, mm. and so I, I remember thinking you know, describing it as like I I'm like reaching for this synthesis and this kind of like this communion, this like connection. And I don't know if I 
achieve that. Like, I don't know if the connection happens in the record. Like, I don't know if it's resolved. Mm. And I think mm-hmm. sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. And, um, and, you know, it, sometimes those dualities feel insurmountable and, and the, you know, the metaphor of waking and sleeping or waking and dreaming and, um, and, and once again, it's like, just go outside, go, go be outside. Like it's always just, that's always, I, I'm just, I want your pony, wait, wait. I want pony. Just be, be in nature. That's it. Is I that was, your response to how you're feeling? Or is that like the, the message in the songs or the ultimate that, goal of the album? I think that's like what I kept finding, like in my own songwriting is like mm-hmm. the places mm-hmm. where the songs were Ooh, yeah. felt rested or where they felt like they made sense or where they felt like I could be honest without being sentimental was there was something about reconnecting to place um, mm-hmm. in the sense of uh, landscape and in the sense of the natural world as something that whether or not I believe those dualities are insurmountable it's not a duality. Like it, we just are of it. We just are of this play. I, so, uh, and so it was, um, yeah, that's what I mean by going outside. Like I, th- there were songs Got that it. I literally wrote outside, but there are also songs that mm. through imagery just like drew really heavily where it's like, well, I don't know how to make the pieces work. And then you look outside and it's like, well, everything else seems to know how the pieces work. Like these, you know, these natural <laughs> entities have, yeah. you know, and, and I'm part of all that. And right. I'm part of it. Yeah. That's my stab. That's my stab on that. My take on that record. Was that your, was that your like talking yeah. shit on the record? Uh, I guess I didn't mean to do. I didn't mean to talk shit. I well, in that I I couldn't help but compare that. Like, okay, you know what? It, I think what it is. I think it's. I think it's just like maybe maybe it's like music industry is the problem mm. because mm-hmm. yeah, you know, or what you're being told about how you should be in your music or what you should be producing or yeah, is that and what how you mean? like everything that you do should be bigger and better than the last thing. Mm. And there's oh, sort yeah. of these, like, you see the nar- the way that narratives are shaped around the trajectory of an artist's creative life and how, oh, they started doing this little thing. And then look, they, and this yeah. is all through the language of some like imagined critic, right? It's like, oh, and then they right. like collaborated and got big and oh, now they're doing jazz. And like, and now it's well, like, capitalism. it's totally capitalism. And it's totally this, it's totally mimicking this, like this false project like this false trajectory of like bigger and better. Right. And, Mm -hmm. and I think that like this album, that second out, that album was like, no, actually it's like seasonal. Actually it's like, there's a Mm -hmm. cycle here and the lowness is, is okay. And that it was just meaning Mm -hmm. like, it's okay. It's okay. Like you can, you can spend some time in the darkness and, um, and, and, Maybe, maybe some, maybe that will resonate with people. Maybe not, but I know I need to do that. So, yeah. Um, yeah. I believe in that like yeah. through and through. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was but obviously from a position of an audience member hmm. who got it that way. 
hmm, way of being in the world. And, Mm -hmm. and I'm sorry to like reference these random things to accent what we're talking about, but I did post a a meme. (laughs) I do these like Monday mortality meme dumps. And one of the memes I shared was this, uh, post about a tweet about like the indigenous perspective of, uh, uh, on success and how inclined we are to like, we've been talking about, like go out and get the thing done and get the acknowledgement and get the success, but that there's cultures who really believe in the, like we, you said, we are part of nature and like beautifully perfect in just that fact Mm -hmm. that life could be, and maybe innately is really, except for our like mind racing. And like we said, these systems we exist within, but like our natural state of being is like, we are beautiful. It's simply just being alive is the accomplishment (laughs) in itself. Like that beautiful act. Mm Yeah. And I really feel like that connects to what you described mm-hmm. about like the going and reconnecting to nature. And, and I'm, and there's this other random, random, um, reference. I I'm just very obsessed with the show alone. And it's, it's this show where 10 people go out to these very remote locations and they get to bring 10 items and they need to survive as long as possible. And if they make it to the end, they get $500,000. Now that's the like well-pitched, well-designed, a popular media content Mm -hmm. emphasized for sure by you're going to win a ton of money. This woman in the most recent seasons uh, out in, in this competition, she gets bit by a poisonous spider treats herself because she wants to stay so badly. She treats herself with herbs and, and plants. She heals that she finds out there's rodents in her home that she's built. She, she has to rid the rodents because they have the henna virus. Uh, she, accomplishes that with just rocks, a trap that she sets up. And then, you know, days after all this stuff that anyone would have justified, right? It's like, if you need to tap out it, we get it. You just almost died. You got bit by a point, you know, all the things. And one day she wakes up and she's like, I'm done here. And it was just that. And it felt like the going into nature, like you described and getting clear and seeing just so obviously what matters and that she simply was like, this isn't a competition and, and to bring it all back into this sort of mortality conversation, but the creatively being here, right? Like we're mm-hmm. compelled to, like you are this like simple fact of, we get a chance to do this. It is not a competition. It does not have to be that. It is mm-hmm. just a, a gift to have this as hard as it is sometimes, boy, can't we just let it be that? And that's it you know? And, wow. and, and I just like cried when she made that choice. Cause mm-hmm. she just completely had this experience out in this beautiful, like part of the world in Patagonia where she just got to let go of it. And in fact, I think it's a version of when you're in the system, you're in the culture, you're in the life, how easy it would be to be like, I want to be a survivalist and go make $500,000. And then you're there. And in that deep reconnecting probably to like the innate, part of who we are, like that's connected, like you said, in all the ways we are to nature and all these things, all these elements were a part of it all to suddenly very clearly know, Oh, what the hell am I doing? I'm good. You know, like I had what I needed here and it's time to go home, you know? Yeah. Wow. I guess I'm just wondering if that, if like her shift into like stepping away, if you could see it, like if the production of the show allowed you to watch that happen because I feel like the production so often determines 
what you're going to experience, whether or not it actually can, you know, it's like, I'm wondering if that was accessible. You're right. I think it's something thoughtful about the show actually Mm -hmm. in that it's produced in a way that knew how to capture both because they're good at producing a show, you know, like we can't, we have to acknowledge, right. They're working for a channel or whatever, Mm -hmm. getting paid to do what they do. But what I love about the show is I don't like reality TV and I won't watch really any of it. And I had a moment before I watched this of like, okay, here we go. But I think what got captured, I'm expressing to you, you know, like it landed for me when she made that call, you know, cause they have these walkie talkies that they're just there. They carry around with them and they just at any moment, if they need to tap out, they do. And she calls and, you know, she bursts into tears. She's feeling it, you know, like she's crying. She's got grief about letting go of this place, but it felt like she was crying cause she had to leave. Not because she gave up $500,000, which is like fake and nothing. It means nothing. Yeah. So when they come get her on the boat, they make a point of recording that moment and she's got both, you know, but more than anything, she's grinning, you know, she's ecstatic to bring it back Mm -hmm. to a word you used earlier. It's like, she, it's not about just, you you know, being like joyfully out of control. It's like that kind of elation, the kind of like release of letting go, like that kind of ecstatic and also not separate from what breaks her heart, you know? Mm -hmm. Wow. So I would say they did a good job. (laughs) All right. So yeah, um, I do highly recommend it and I, I recommend it. Um, I don't work for the history channel by the way, but I, and we're not sponsored. We're not sponsored by them. (laughs) We have to cut that actually. We, we can't, we do have to (laughs) cut it. We do. (laughs) Um, but the mental piece of being in nature for that long alone and what it means to like face these parts of ourselves, we see like this guy go out there and tap out in two days because his whole thing is about positive mental attitude. And he's a survivalist. He's made Mm. for this game. He's made for this show. And he tapped out in two days because, because yeah. he was suddenly faced with the darkness and the aloneness. And, yeah. and then uh. you have a woman like this who's just a badass who mm-hmm. taps out on her own terms because she's yeah. like, I'm good, you know? Yeah. But the mental part of it is so meaningful to me to see these people like work through it and record themselves because the cameras, they do, they bring all that equipment and they have to record themselves. And it's just something to see them like go through all those things, especially that mental um like fortitude and breakdown, all the things. So I can't recommend I it enough. Too on on positive mental attitude. I think that like I have, you know, I know people who ascribe to that and mm-hmm. um and I I've experienced the judgment of falling short, you know, of in of their ideals and in that realm of positive mental attitude. And, but I, I think I'm starting to kind of understand what I think the, my critique of it is when it's because so much of it, I think sometimes is like, it's your will that's dragging your body through this like military regime of positivity. Mm-hmm. And it, and it's mm-hmm. like your body has to come to like, your body has to also want it and 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 the and your body mm. knows things that your brain doesn't and 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 there's a different negotiation that happens when when like when your body is like yes i i do want to go for a hike i do want to mm-hmm. 
wake up early. Like that is something else. And I, anyway, that's all. I just recently had conversations around this and I, and it's, I am thinking about it a lot because it, it ties into the sleeping and it ties into, you know, that this sort of like, I'm going to like muscle my way through it. But I think that there's some like, I think there's some self-hatred in there. If you have to like Mm -hmm. drag the burden of your body up the mountain versus like yeah, you're wrong. everything's this online. Wrong. Yeah. Right. Like you want it all. You want all of you to be there. Right. I don't know. Like water 
deep, deep gratitude to Karima Walker for her participation in this conversation. I just want to add that uh, what we don't talk about and has not been mentioned in the episode so far is how complicated it got trying to record this conversation. We had a ton of technical difficulties and had to set up another time. At one point, I just didn't record maybe 30 minutes of our talk. I just like being honest about these things. It's rare that that happens with a guest, but it happened and Karima just was down and they made the time to talk and it actually ended up making, I think, our connection so much more meaningful and deeper than it would have been otherwise because we had this like journey to get to all the things we wanted to touch on. And so thank you, Karima, for saying yes and then going through all that to finally get this sweet episode put together with our conversation. If you want to find out more from Karima Walker, you want to get into what she's up to, Go to karimawalker.bandcamp.com forward slash music. I'll put Karima's website up on the show notes. You can also find Karima Walker, K-A-R-I-M-A, Walker, just Walker, um, on Instagram. And if you want to send Karima a little tip of gratitude, especially once you listen to their music, you can tip Karima on Venmo at karima-walker. And then last thing Karima asked me to share is her love for an organization called Borderlands Restoration Network. And you can go to borderlandsrestoration.org forward slash donate and support that organization. We love supporting the things our guests believe in. So all these links will be in the show notes. Check it out. And I cannot recommend Karima's music enough. Again, this conversation was born out of my Spotify playlist release radar out of nowhere one of her songs popped into that list and ooh, the rest is history and so glad you're a part of it you too nick jana thank god for the algorithm right hooks you up sometimes how do they do that well a little secret about the algorithm <laughs> yeah it's a mirror <laughs> it's reflecting you oh wow right i just got anxious Oh boy. Um, that really landed, <laughs> landed really heavily in my, ch oh. my chest. Um, well, thanks right. Nick. <laughs> thanks okay. for that wisdom. And well, that's been our show folks. Oh, thanks for being in your bye? ears. Wait a no, second. no, no, no. Sorry, yeah. sorry, sorry. <laughs> you're going to say bye at the end of this one though, but let's talk for just a minute before mm -hmm. you're the one that says bye. We don't ever let you say goodbye. I had something I wanted to ask you. You okay. mentioned just the other day that you were in uh, seeing a therapist about um, just a lot of like uh, energy you've been holding, emotions you've been holding, like taking on just a lot of the emotions of the world, of, of people you interact with mm -hmm. and holding space. And you said this therapist said something like, we'll stop holding space. In in kind of like a straightforward tough love kind of way. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, a, a, not even tough love, but love, love. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we were talking and then we moved on to something else. And it's been sticking in my head of what do you take from that? And, and what does that actually look like to you to do everything that you do to show up and be present and everything, but to not hold space to your detriment? Yeah. That quote is a pretty direct one. I feel like 
what came next in that session is hard to quote, but I think what it left me feeling, and I really took into this week and, and feels like it was effective uh, guidance. Uh, and I'm not sure this week, I think we've, this all kind of connects. I think as an organization, we're paying attention to like making room, taking a break, making space, like not overwhelming ourselves and being actually glad if something needs to be canceled or moved. And so, and I can connect that more after I try to answer your question in a, a, a really important first way. And, and I think what I took away from him saying that, because it was sort of a tough love guidance, that's how it landed for me, was relief in that the option then is like, you're not holding space. He said something like, you're just a facilitator. And the not holding means I could like let it go. And I could like put it down or I could, I could actually be in relationship with everybody sharing as a kind of not being in relationship to it. A, a, I'm not responsible for all this. I, I'm not, I don't need to take responsibility for all these, all these shares, everything that's coming up for these people. I don't need to fix it. I don't need to respond in a certain way that somehow is, um, I don't know, like an acknowledgement for how hard or how much grief or how heartbroken it's again, it's really hard to put words to it, but, but coming into this week, let's say going into my cancer patient workshops and San Quentin, there's some stuff that came up and I will tell you that I think related to him, his guidance and those words, it felt like me being maybe one step back from what I've been usually in the, in those spaces, in my facilitation it's a little bit like I'm just really observing here and I'm making room for this stuff to come up. And that's kind of it. Um, and it, and it all feeds into this ongoing question, right? Things you and I talk about all the time, stuff that's come up in the podcast a lot. What does it mean to, to make room for these things with community? How are we responsible for each other or not? Um, how are we not, burdening ourselves by asking someone to share their heartbreak? How are we doing it in a way that it's a relief for all of us, a lightning for all of us? Um, and I would just add in connection to him saying that he just told me, you know, this is all your work and you should like it, but your job is to be happy and be happy at home with your wife and your kids. And I'm definitely feeling that. And it does connect to the holding space, like also simply how we use language, how powerful words are that I could this week not call anything I do holding space just because he said that and maybe even feel a little bit of a different relationship to being in these workshops and in the prison and in our grief release later today, you know? It's such a great message to receive that we're not going to receive from hardly anybody else in mm. the world. Your job is to be happy and be with your family. And mm -hmm. <laughs> your job is not all of the things you do to make money as much mm -hmm. as you might love them. You know, mm -hmm. um, that's such a great framing of, of things. I was thinking of that just this morning. I was um, just by myself eating breakfast and like listening to some funny podcast or something and just laughing. And I just thought of that framing of, you know, 
my only job is to be happy. And right now I'm happy. And I, like you, I'm sure I'm so used to like twisting that up with other narratives and drama and other stuff. Like, yeah, but I got to search for the sadness. I got to search for the, the bad thing in my life or the weird relationship or something that's wrong. You know, I just like, man, I'm really enjoying this toast right now and <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> laughing at this thing. And like, I am happy, you know? Yeah. It's actually easier. Yeah. And I hope that this week feeling that way for me too, like I relate to that, isn't just because it's spring break and the kids happen to be out of town. <laughs> and, you know, there's a lot of room more than usual, but it's still to to his point and my hope that I could have a week where I'm mostly happy and not feeling particularly burdened or stressed And I could pick a bunch of things. I mean, you and I, even before we click record, like some stuff came up in sort of organizational context that I just know I could run away with in in terms of like anxiety or thinking I got to fix or figure something out. And boy, I don't want to do that with most of my life. You know? Yeah. I do want to be happy. Mm -hmm. And and I want to be happy in contrast to how much hurts and how much is hard, like knowing that that's part of life and knowing that the, the world is, is got a ton of suffering. Um, but I'd like to know that and make room for it and be the, a person who leaves joyful and grateful and happy. I don't want to be a person who's somehow thinks that I, speaking of mirrors, that I need to be all those things to really say, okay, I get it. And I'm just as broken as you seem to be, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I want to leave like my therapist gave me the experience of someone who's decades got decades on me and, and the parenting and the, the, the life experience in so many super intensely dramatic ways who has become a, a an example of someone who, is joyful and wants to make a prayer for life. Sure, we make room for grief and death and dying in this organization, but I want as much life as I can get, mm-hmm. you know? And and that's that's what I took away from that session and the like holding on, holding space, like let it go. And the let it go is like it's it is asking to like hold it for a second. It mm-hmm. uh, it is it is asking to have it dropped in our palms for a, a brief moment. But then it's moves on, you know, doesn't have to stay here. Yeah. Thanks, Nick. Well, folks, that's our show. <laughs> We're in your ear. Oh, God. With tears for fears. So here's <laughs> to 10 more years. Cheers. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Cue the song. Cue the song.